Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This is the Horror Shots Podcast. There can be no more unholy an act, no more cruel a fate than the transformation of a soul into a vampire. But like most afflictions, preventative action can be taken if the symptoms are diagnosed early enough. Hello again and welcome back to another Horror Shots podcast with me, Casey. So last week we went over some of the vampire hunter rules and I went off script and I'm going to do the same thing today. Uh, It got some pretty good feedback. Some people said they liked it. So we're going to keep running with it until people tell me to stop, in which case I will stop. But until then, we're going to continue on with the Vampire Watcher's Handbook, A Guide for Slayers by Constantine Gregory. But before we get started on the next subsection of Chapter 1, got some good old housekeeping to do. Of course, I want to thank you for listening and for the feedback and interacting with me on Twitter. Uh, Those are some great moments, and I always love interacting with everybody who listens. It's a lot of fun, and it makes it a little worthwhile. I mean, I put these out there, and I see that they get downloaded every once in a while, but does anybody actually listen? So when I get some feedback, it's kind of exciting. So that's just, uh, you know, my two cents on the subject there. But... Again, I just said I want to thank you for your support, but there are some more things you can do if you want to, you know, support me in other ways, like Patreon. Uh, You can check out my Patreon page at patreon.com slash horrorshots, where you can get some access to some never-before-seen posts and pictures and access to my website at horrorshotsblog.wordpress.com. Also, follow me on Twitter. I mentioned it before. I'll follow you right back at horrorshotspod. Or on Facebook at the same name, Horshots Podcast. Oh, where else? Where else? I think that's it. I think I covered all my bases. So I guess that means we can just kind of get into it. As I mentioned, this is going to be read pretty much verbatim from the Vampire Watchers Handbook, a guide for slayers. And I'll be interjecting in between here and there to, you know, give my own opinions on the subject. But most of it is going to be straight from the book. And this is an exciting one for me, actually. This is official accounts. And this was something I had a hard time finding back when I did my first podcast on vampires a couple months ago. I was looking for real-life accounts, and the only ones I could find seemed to come from, you know, the 17th century or Middle Europe or Eastern Europe. And they weren't really great accounts. And it looks like these are a lot of the same, to be completely honest. Um, I was hoping for something a little more updated but I'm not entirely sure when this book was written, so I can't imagine there'll be anything too uh, out there, too up-to-date, so to speak. Uh, The copyright for the book is 1988, so we're not going to have anything super recent in here anyway, and I didn't realize it was this old. It's in pretty good shape considering it was a uh, thrift store book, but hey, whatever. It's all fun and games, right? So we got official accounts here, and it starts off with a story about a man called Arnold Paol. And I might be pronouncing that completely wrong. But story goes, there are few cases of vampirism as well documented as that of Arnold Paol, a Serb who returned from the grave to terrorize the village of Medugana near Belgrade. The official police account, which was published in 1731 by 
Dr. Johan Fluckinger. Yes, Fluckinger, still a PG cast, and countersigned by other respected eyewitnesses. A soldier, Arnold Pale, had returned from a tour of duty in the revenant-infested Greece in 1728. He fell to his death, but not before sharing an account of a vampire visitation he had experienced while in Greece. Within a month of his death, Pale was seen wandering nightly through the village. Many complained of harassment from his reanimated corpse, some dying in mysterious circumstances. A suspected vampire, Pale was disinterred and found with his jaws gaped wide open, lips moist with new blood. Garlic was scattered over the corpse and a stake plunged through his chest. The bodies of those thought to be Pale's victims were also exhumed and given a similar reparation. By the start of the 18th century, the vampire had infiltrated the upper reaches of society from the universities and military academies to the churches and royal courts. Increasing amounts of anecdotal evidence from across Europe seemed to support the existence of vampires. The same was even true in the New World where the Spanish conquistadors returned from their travels with tales of civiteo, witch vampires. Accounts of the stirrings of reanimated corpses were gradually legitimized through their publication in countless dissertations and treatises by the world's most learned men. Among these were tracts on eating habits of the undead, on the masticating dead in their tombs, published in 1728, and treatises on the chewing and eating dead in their graves, 1734, both by Michael Ranfitus and Christopher Roll and Johann Hartel and his Dissertation of the Blood-Sucking Dead of 1732. Not wishing to be overshadowed by men of science, the church countered with its own contribution published in Paris in 1746, the Dissertation on the Appearance of Angels, Demons, and Spirits, and on the Revenants and Vampires of Hungary and Bohemia, of Moravia, and of Silesia. The significant work was created by the Benedict Dom Augustine Calmet. The accompanying increase in literacy during both the 17th and 18th century contributed not only to the spread of vampirism, or at least of vampire tales, but also, thankfully, to the dissemination of more thoughtful considered essays on the subject. The Age of Enlightenment was fast approaching, and any worthy vampire slayer knows... Light can be particularly injurious to the undead. That brings us to the end of that subsection. We've got another one here. This is still chapter one, by the way. So I just want to keep that in mind. Chapter two is coming up fairly shortly, I believe. Just a few more pages to go. This subsection here is entitled Vampires and the Enlightenment. And here it has another... Uh, sort of sub-blurb, and it's about vampire killers. And these cases are always a little more interesting to me, like Richard Chase, uh, the vampire of Sacramento, I believe he was. Always interesting why people believe that they are a vampire, when it's quite possible real vampires actually exist. But I digress, and I will get back to the book, Vampire Killers. The 19th century saw the popular return of the term vampire to describe sadistic, bloodthirsty murderers who were very much alive. The German serial killer Fritz Harman, for example, came to be 
known widely as the Hanover Vampire, for his cannibalistic preying on as many as 50 young homosexual men, and the so-called Vampire of Dusseldorf, Peter Curtin, strangled, raped, and slit the throats of his victims craving their blood, just as, in his own words, an alcoholic craves liquor. You cannot understand me, Curtin stated, before losing his head at the guillotine. No one can understand me. The intellectual revolution of the 18th century that became known as the Enlightenment saw the abandonment of many entrenched customs heralding a new scientific age of reason. It was a time of great change and the beginning of the end for many beliefs and superstitions, especially in all things ghostly and vampiric. Faith in science over superstition and religion saw a gradual decrease in reports of vampire activity. The empiricists and natural philosophers of the Enlightenment castigated the folklorists and religious fanatics for their beliefs in the undead. Meanwhile, the church, while continuing to believe in the devil and the resurrection, now refused to endorse accounts of vampires and witches. One of the most influential philosophers of the Enlightenment was Jean-Jacques Rousseau, 1712 to 1778. He summarized the progressive, if ambiguous, attitude to vampires in a letter to Archbishop Christophe de Beaumont. If there is in this world a well-attested account, it is that of the vampires. Nothing is lacking, official reports, affidavits, and well-known people of surgeons and priests, of magistrates. The judicial proof is almost complete, and with all that, who is there who believes in vampires? But was the paucity of vampire accounts from this period a consequence of a greater understanding of the mechanisms of death? Or was it the unwillingness of science to publish reports of activities considered too demonic, too pagan, too irrational for dissemination. For, just as happened during the Reformation, pockets of Europe remained untouched by the new schools of thought. The illiterate gypsy population that traveled to the remote parts of Hungary, Serbia, Romania, Russia, and Greece continued to report encounters with the undead, and bodies continued to be unearthed, staked, and cremated. But even if the vampire had been killed off by science, it was about to be resurrected by a new master, romantic literature. That brings us to the next subsection of literary vampires. There's a nice little quote here, and as I said last week, I do enjoy a good quote. From my grave to wander, I am forced still to seek the goods long-severed link, still to love the bridegroom I have lost, and the lifeblood of his heart to drink. When his race is run, I must hasten on, and the young must neath my vengeance sink. That's an excerpt from The Bride of Corneth by Johann Wolfgang von Goethe in 1797, so, let's start the chapter, or subchapter rather, on literary vampires. In the literary sense, the vampire attained immortality at the end of the 18th century. Although fictional revenants of various sorts began to appear during the 1740s, it was not until the publication of Johann Wolfgang von Goethe's Ballad, The Bride of Corinth, of 1797, as I just mentioned. 
that the vampire became known to a large audience. Goeth's vampire is a lovesick young maiden who dies when her parents refuse to allow her to marry her paramour. She returns from the grave to consummate her love, although not as a feculent, abhorrent corpse, but as the beauty she was in life. The poem concludes with the vampire burning on a funeral pyre. Farther gothic romances followed with each new incantation of the vampire, deviating further from the monster of legend. In Dr. John Polidori's novella, The Vampire, a tale of 1819, we encounter the aloof, aristocratic Lord Ruthven, whose dead gray eye and deadly hue attract the attentions of a many society lady. James Malcolm Rymer's Varney the Vampire in 1847 developed this aristocratic theme by introducing the cruel, sadistic Sir Francis Varney, a cad who continually preys on beautiful young women in spite of having already been hanged, shot, and staked. The theme of vampire sexuality was given a dose of credibility by Sheridan Le Fanu, whose Carmilla introduced us to the languid, very languid lesbian temptress, Michala Karnstein. The vampire's, the vampire's eternal fate was finally sealed with the publication of Bram Stoker's seminal Dracula in 1897. Drawing on the rich characters and gothic horror of early vampire fiction, and expertly weaving in Eastern European folklore such as the legend of Vlad Tepes, the Impaler, Stoker created an unforgettable monster that will haunt the world forever. However, as far as real vampires are concerned, Dracula proved to be the final nail in the coffin, for the blood-sucking beasts of folklore have now been usurped by a fictional creation whose power over us is greater than that of any revenant. But has the fiend of folklore gone forever? Or could it be merely lurking in the shadows, biding its time? Now, that does bring us to the end of that, and that's the end of the first chapter, and I want to go over some things that we literally just read. Speaking of literary, ha, plan words, literally, literary, anyway. I've always been a fan of vampire fiction, if it's good. I mean, you can't go wrong with things like Interview with a Vampire, or a lot of Anne Rice-style works. However... When vampires, and I mentioned this last week, start to sparkle, I kind of draw the line. I get it, they're supposedly a fictional being, and you can have creative freedom with them. You can do whatever you want. They're your ideas once they're out there. There's no copyright on how to write a vampire. But what about the real accounts, ones that I've talked about prior, the vampire killers, or even Arnold Pale, who was, for all intents and purposes... A vampire. People saw him after he had died, and he'd killed people, and his corpse appeared to have been recently alive. There was blood on his lips, and his mouth was agape. So how do you think we go from these very real-sounding accounts to these very extreme caricatures of what the vampire is? I've always wondered that. How does the evolution of the literary vampire occur from these gruesome tales of the past? When did they become romanticized and teen fiction-y? It's a question I'll probably really never get to answer, 
but is one that will probably be on my mind for a very long time. Now, that does bring us to, like I said, the end of that chapter. And I think we'll kick things off with chapter two, maybe next time. We're going on about 20 minutes now. And it seems like a good place. It wasn't a very long cast compared to last week, which I think ran about 30 minutes. But I don't want to stretch things too far. So I'll just put a little bookmark in there. And I think we will continue this next week. Maybe I'll try to get another one up midweek. It's not entirely plausible, but you never know what might happen. The book is approximately, how long are you, book? We are looking at around 150 to 160 pages, covering about five, maybe six chapters. So I would like to complete it, but if at any point you get sick of this, just please just let me know on Twitter. Uh, Send me a DM, send me a tweet, whatever, and I will come up with something new, but I'm kind of fascinated by how this is going. And like I said last week, I'm kind of excited to share it with you. I'm two chapters down. We are roughly 30 pages or so in. So we've got a little bit ways to go. I could have these casts go a little bit longer, you know, maybe an hour if you like. I don't know if anybody wants to sit here and listen to me talk for an hour. But regardless, I will be back in the near future with chapter two. Maybe I'll pump out all of chapter two in that one and we'll see how it goes. It'll be a super long cast, but we'll see. It's a lot of editing too, because all these breaths that I had to cut out. Trust me, I don't sound this perfect. There's a lot of audio editing that goes into these sort of things. Anyway, beside the point, I will be back next week. And of course, don't forget to check out some of my other stuff. You want to see some cool pictures. There are some vampire pictures, I believe, on my website uh, for free. If not, feel free to pledge. Uh, five bucks, I believe, gets you the password to my unseen section of the website, which I know there are some vampire and blood pictures in there because I have kind of a vampire thing going on. But regardless, thank you once again for listening.